Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Andrew, and I, too, serve as a pastor here. Let me welcome, invite you to grab your Bibles, turn them open to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, today, we're bringing our study of this letter under the theme titled Indestructible Joy to a close, where we're going to look at the last few verses of this book and kind of land the plane on it. And as you get into Philippians chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 21 through 23, and then I'm going to voice a prayer for us, and we will dive right in. It reads, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Heavenly Father, as we examine these words and study what it is your spirit would like to speak to us through these sentences, I ask God that you would open our heart to receive and to respond. God, would you do a work within us that would continue to further your work in our lives so that we might be the people and live into the uh, identity that you've called and bestowed upon us as your church, as your people in this world. God, we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, first glance, reading those verses 21 through 23, some of you might think, well, this is going to be a boring time of Bible study. Uh, you're, you're reading those verses and thinking, what is there for us in these verses about greeting and its greetings that's being extended between people that we've never met personally and have been long gone? And so we're reading these verses wondering, well, is there any really, is there any substance here for us? Is there anything that can edify our souls and mobilize our lives from these three verses? And so you might be tempted to treat this passage the way you treat a flight attendant's instructions on the airplane. Uh, every time you get on the plane and they go through their spiel telling you what all you need to do in case of an emergency, uh, you just zone out, you tune out, you're not really into it. It's hard for you to discern the relevancy of it for your life. And, and so just kind of tune out because none of us really expect to go down in a plane. We, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a high percentage of planes that actually go down. So we just don't think about that very much. And so the temptation is to treat these verses like that, or you may be tempted to treat this passage similar to the way that you treat those people with petitions outside of PCC. They're constantly standing out there trying to get people to engage them in conversation, to share something with those who are passing by, and you just kind of keep walking. If you're like me, just head down, go. And uh, so you never really engage in those moments. But I assure you, uh, this do not, uh, do not neglect the substance of this passage. It is a simple text, but it is a substantial text. There, there are some significant things for our hearts and for our church that kind of come through the words that are written in verses 21 through 23. And so as we kind of close the book of uh, close the book of Philippians and draw this study to a close, we're also kind of using this as kind of a launch pad into a new emphatic season in the life of our church. If you've been around the Hallows Church very long, you know that we exist to magnify and to multiply the gospel through Seattle to the ends of the earth. That we desire to magnify the gospel in our worships. Every time we gather together in this capacity or in West Seattle or in North Seattle, we do so to sing the gospel together. We do so to speak the gospel into one another's lives. And we do so to see the gospel as we approach the Lord's Supper week in and week out. Or we have the opportunity to celebrate through baptism. We want to magnify the gospel in our worship. But then we also recognize that we have a desire to multiply the gospel by making disciples. That we want to see more men and women step into a loving relationship with Jesus. To know his love for them and for them to fall in love with him in return. We want to see that happen in lives all throughout this city and ultimately 
to the ends of the earth. That's who we are as a church. And with that said, I kind of want to bring us into a more concrete or more a sharper focus as far as what that means for us on a practical uh, level as we are thinking about the role that we have in one another's lives and the role that we have in this city that we find ourselves in. And that is to say, yes, we exist to magnify and to multiply the gospel through Seattle to the ends of the earth, but we're going to do that by putting an emphasis on how we desire And here's the new sentence. We desire to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships. That's essentially how we're going to be who God has called us to be and how we're going to do what God has called us to do. We want to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships. And you know what it means to saturate, right? You, you, you got an image of that when you woke up this morning. We've gone like 57, 58 days without water in Seattle, which is absurd. So it's been a hot, dry season in our city. But what happened when you woke up this morning? You woke up to temperatures dropping. You woke up to mist and water falling. You woke up to saturation. You saw water just covering everything. And with that water comes life. With that water comes flourishing. And essentially, as we move into the future together, we want to do so with the desire and the intention of seeing lives flourish through gospel-saturated relationships. And to do that, there's a few threads or a few themes on how we can do that and where we kind of kind of put the emphasis and the accent in the life of our church kind of coming through these three verses. And these are just three themes that are present here. And there's other passages that speak to how we're going to do that together. And we'll uncover those as time moves on. But what we want to give ourselves to is seeing lives flourish through gospel-saturated relationships. And so three themes that kind of speak to that from this passage that I want to put before you today. One is identity, two is hospitality, and three, grace. Identity, hospitality, and grace. Let's take first identity. When you look at what Paul is saying in verse 21, he's affirming identity in this passage. He's affirming that those who are worshiping and serving Jesus in the church of Philippi, the members of that faith family, he's affirming their identity by describing them in that peculiar expression that they are saints in Christ Jesus. And that might raise some questions in our minds because saint and that whole language is is odd. We don't really go around calling one another saints today. We don't really call one another by that label or use that as an identity marker. But part of that is because the word saint is one of the most widely misunderstood words in the Christian language. Not long after the first century, as the church began to grow in the world and we began to get a little bit of history behind us, we we begin to see how church leaders started to look back on the apostles, guys like Paul, guys like Peter, and they would refer to them as saints. So they would call them St. Paul, St. Peter. And in so doing, I think they kind of accidentally left the implication for us and for other believers to think that to be a saint meant you occupied some unique status in the kingdom of God. And so if you were an apostle like Paul who wrote the majority of the New Testament, or if you were one like Peter who ran with Jesus in his most intimate moments, that would endow you with the identity of a saint. And then that tradition just kind of compounded upon itself as time rolled on. You get into the Roman Catholic Church as it began to grow and do its thing, and eventually they kind of developed a process of, of sainting 
people, of giving that label to men and women who have uh, impacted the world in some extraordinary or unique capacity. And so if, they, if you make a unique contribution to God's kingdom and his activity in the world, then you can uh, earn the identity of a saint. But maybe you're not familiar with the Roman Catholic tradition. Maybe that's not your speed. Maybe more, you're more kind of cut from an evangelical cloth and you come from more of a Protestant angle. And even there, there's a misunderstanding of this word. So that sometimes we apply the word saint to those who are exceptionally mature in their faith those who are exceptionally uh, moral in their faith. We tend to think of saints as kind of the, the um, grandmothers in a church. You know, the, 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 she's a saint of a woman or he's a saint of a man. They're at church every Sunday and we talk about all the things that they have done for decades in the life of one particular local church and we endow them with the identity saint. But when you look at what Paul is saying here in Philippians and what he says elsewhere, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you're going to see him actually describing and using this language to identify every single believer, regardless of their age, regardless of their accomplishments, regardless of their maturity level. Every believer is a saint in Christ Jesus. That's what he's affirming about their identity in this passage. And you might think, well, sure, he's talking about the church at Philippi. And as we've discovered, the church at Philippi was one of Paul's favorite churches. It was a healthy church. It was a joyful church. It was one that supported Paul through thick and thin. But I would encourage you to consider what Paul says about the Corinthians. If you're familiar with the New Testament, the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians were written to a, a church in a city called Corinth. And that church was highly dysfunctional. That church wasn't nearly as healthy as the church at Philippi. In fact, that was a church that found itself in conflict with Paul for, on, for a number of reasons and on a number of levels. And so there were factions within the church who kind of protested Paul's leadership and tried to disqualify Paul as being an influential person in the church. It wasn't a good scene, but yet when Paul writes to them, listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, saints together with all called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He even refers to those in the church at Corinth as saints. And that is an encouraging word for you and I when we consider uh, who we are in Christ because who we are is far greater than we realize. You don't usually consider, view yourself and perhaps you don't view other Christians as saints, as sacred, holy, special, called out, set apart men and women for the purposes of God. We don't see one another as sacred people in that front, but yet that's exactly, or in that sense, but that's exactly what Paul is communicating in this passage. He's affirming identity. So when it comes to how we saturate our relationships with the gospel, it, it ties into how you and I view each other. And so let me ask you, when you view another disciple, are you more aware of their deficiencies that seem readily apparent? Or are you operating from a perspective that says, you know, that guy, that gal, that is a saint in Christ Jesus. That is a sacred member of the family of God. That is a person who's been called out by God's grace, set apart by God's grace for his glory. So that we're viewing one another with dignity. We're viewing one another with honor. And when we begin to see each other in that light, it gives us patience with each other. 
We understand that our identity as saints is more tied to our position in Christ than it is to our performance for Christ. That being a saint, this identity as a Christian is not dependent upon what we do and how well we do it. It's dependent upon what God bestows upon us by His grace in and through the person and work of Jesus. So he's affirming identity here. And if we're going to saturate our relationships with each other, we need to affirm this identity about each other as well. Now, this doesn't mean that you start introducing yourself as Saint so-and-so. You know, if you ever hear me step up and say, I'm Saint Andrew, run. That's not what this identity is all about. This isn't a, a label that we lead with. This is a reality that we enjoy. It's the fact that we are in Christ. God sees us as saints. He sees us as holy. He sees us as sacred. He sees us as unique. And we rest in that because it's not tied to how well we're performing the Christian life. It's not tied to what unique contributions we're making to the kingdom of God. It's entirely dependent upon God's grace towards us in Jesus. And so we are saints. That's our identity. And that's what we want to affirm. So when you look around and you see other believers in, your, in this church and throughout this city and around the world, I want you to consider how they are saints in Christ Jesus and perhaps put the accent there rather than on their deficiencies or their dysfunction or their struggles or their shortcomings that, you, that may seem readily apparent to you. This is how we saturate our relationships with the gospel. We begin to see one another the way God sees us. And God sees us as saints in Christ but notice he doesn't only affirm the fact that they are saints in Christ Jesus. There's another word that he used here that speaks to our identity. And this is, it speaks to our shared identity. In the very next sentence, he says, The brothers who are with me greet you. Meaning there were other believers in Paul's life who were greeting the church at Philippi. And so he uses that word brother. And he does this all throughout his letters to affirm the fact that in Christ we become a family. That in Christ, our relationships with one another take on a familial form so that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that in the church or as a church, we are like family. I'm saying in the church, we are family. That is our identity. We're not like family. We're not trying to uh, imitate the families that we're more familiar with or, or in those kinds of ways. We want to recognize the fact that in Christ we are brothers and sisters. We have been adopted into the family of God. Paul would affirm this in verse 20 when he refers to God as Father, doesn't he? Verse 20, he says, to, God, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's saying, look, when you relate to God, you're not just relating to him as your creator. You're relating to him as your father. And that's something you do and I do in Christ. We've been adopted into his family. And as such, we are brothers and sisters with each other. We are bound together in a spiritual reality that is stronger and a bond that runs deeper than our natural bloodlines. We are bound together by the blood of Jesus. And his blood is a better blood that binds so it's significant how we view one another and how we relate to one another, not like family, but as family. That's our identity in Christ. We are brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the same heavenly, heavenly father. Now, in light of that, it's made these past couple of days just very significant. I think this is 
the point where this passage begins to speak prophetically into where we are right now in this country. You know the divisions and the fractions and the hostility that has taken place in Charleston, Virginia over the past 48 hours. It hasn't been a pretty scene. There's been a lot of questions. Where is the church at on this? Why isn't the church speaking out against this? How, what is the church's role in the midst of those types of divisions and conflicts when you see people divided and hostility being shown uh, in large part due to ethnic and cultural differences and distinctions? And so you're seeing a group of people marching in the streets of Charleston, Virginia, who are elevating their race, elevating that identity above any other label or any other identity that they might subscribe to, including those who might carry the label as Christian into that setting and into that context. And so it's in light of this passage, in light of the fact that we are that our identity is in Christ, and in Christ we are saints, in Christ that we are family. It's where we have to realize. Well, we have to realize that there comes a point where our identity in Christ trumps any other identity that people might give us or that we might acquire or that we might have in the world that is. Meaning, in light of the events in Charleston, if there were those who were walking those streets under waving the banner of white supremacy or white nationalism, and they were waving that banner, clamoring for that identity, they cannot simultaneously call themselves or label themselves or be identified with Christ and his church. The our identity in Christ and anyone's identity as a white supremacist or a white nationalist, those two identities are mutually exclusive. They cannot occupy the same person. Therefore, the only option for those who are marching the streets, trying to live in both worlds, carrying the label Christian while championing causes that degrade the image of God in other people or champion causes that contradict the reality of the gospel, the only option for them is to repent and believe the gospel. That's the only option. Those two identities are mutually exclusive. You cannot call yourself or see yourself in Christ while carrying a label that would demean or devalue another image bearer in this world. And so when it comes to who we are as a church and how we speak into this context and into this situation, that's what we say. We see the events in Charleston and we recognize it as sin. We recognize it as evil. We affirm the fact that those who are carrying the name of Jesus in those streets, they are doing so as hypocrites. They are doing so as frauds. They are doing so as fakes. They cannot simultaneously live in the identity or carry out their identity in Christ while embracing an identity that devalues and de degrades people who are not like them according to ethnicity or culture or any other demographic. And so that's our response. That's our posture as a church. The way that we saturate our relationships with the gospel is by calling people into a better identity calling people to step into Christ, find themselves a part of his multi-ethnic family where every human being is valued and every human being is treated with dignity. And any system or any practice that would devalue another, that system or that practice needs to be exposed and called out for what it is. 
Gospel-saturated relationships affirms and insists upon people's identity being located in Christ, recognizing that that identity transcends every other identity that a person may carry in this world. This is exactly what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 3. This is how we're to read Galatians chapter 3 in that passage that you read earlier. There in Galatians chapter 3, he makes this statement. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, that means your identity is located in him. His life is your life. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's who we are. And then he goes on to say, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. Now that doesn't mean that when you step into the family of Christ, all of our distinctions are erased. That's not the point. But it does mean that our distinctions no longer ultimately and definitively label us or define us. It means that those distinctions, they're not erased, but it means that though they are there and we respect them and we affirm them in each other, they no longer define us and they ultimately cannot divide us. And when you and I get into that reality, when we sink into Christ and his family together as a multi-ethnic community, you know what's going to happen? That's when you and I are going to make the gospel visible to the watching world. That's when you and I can create the kind of life that would cause onlookers to want to be a part of a counter kingdom, a counter culture that says, look, it is possible for people who are distinct from one another on social grounds, on ethnic grounds, on demographic grounds. There, it is possible for those people to step in and be family together. It is possible for those people to love one another and serve one another and get along with one another. And that's what we want to be as a church. That's our identity in Christ. We are saints in Christ Jesus. We are members of the family of Christ. This is why one author describing the church in the first century, he would describe the church in the first century and why the church in the first century was able to have such a rapid impact on the watching world. And he attributed it to how believers of diverse backgrounds entered into relationship with one another in the church and loved each other well. Listen to what he says. He says, what that first century world saw was the phenomenon of people of all walks of life loving one another, serving one another, caring for one another, praying for one another. Slaves and free men were in that community. Rich and poor were in the fellowship. Roman citizens and non-Roman citizens were in that community. Members of the establishment and those violently opposed to the establishment were part of that community. The intelligentsia and the illiterate were members of that community. To the utter amazement of the world outside, they were bound together in an inexplicable love and an inexplicable unity. This is how we make the gospel visible to the watching world. Yes, we go forth and we speak out and we call out. We name sin as sin. We call evil evil. We do that type of activity. But the most effective way we are going to advance the kingdom of God is by loving one another well, by not allowing our distinctions to divide us. And so we want to press into this new identity. This is how we saturate our relationships with the gospel is by relating to one another on that front in these kinds of ways. But not only does Paul affirm identity here, he also speaks about this practice of hospitality. 
And if we're going to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships, not only do we need to affirm our identity in Christ and our, the fact that we're all a part of the same family, we also need to cultivate hospitality. Hospitality between us and hospitality for the world around us. This is why he's emphasizing that one word that pops up three times in two verses, that one word, greet. He says, I want you to greet one another. And he says it three times, going in different directions. He says, I want you to greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 22, all the saints here, they greet you as well. Then he points out, especially those of Caesar's household. That's a strange thing for him to throw in there. What I think's going on and why he would drop that is because he was saying he wanted the church to know that there were people in Caesar's household. Now, we don't know if that means bloodline family or if that means just people who were employed by Caesar and worked in, in his close quarters and those types of things. But Paul's saying, look, there's, been, there's people here who've met Jesus. And you're going to be tempted to hold them at arm's length. You're going to be tempted not to trust them because they're members of Caesar's household. The church at Philippi was being persecuted because they called Jesus Lord, not Caesar Lord. And now they're in a situation where they have to show hospitality to people who've been redeemed out of that, out of that system, who now know Jesus. And Paul's saying, I want you to know that even the, the new disciples who are, who are from Caesar's household, they, they're greeting you, especially. I, w- I want you to know that you guys are to love one another and to show hospitality to each other. Don't hold each other at an arm's length. Don't view one another with cynicism or suspicion. This is what he's getting after. So he's saying, greet. And if we're going to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships, we need to cultivate hospitality. The word greet literally means to embrace. We need to learn to embrace one another and to engage in hospitable recognition of each other. And Paul, here in this passage, seizes a strategic moment to make that statement. And as he seizes that strategic moment to end his letter in this way, he's expressing his love for them. And he's encouraging them to love one another through the simple practice of greeting each other. Now, when he talks about this dynamic of embracing each other, of hospitably recognizing one another... And if you and I are going to cultivate hospitality, and if a part of that is this idea of greeting, I want you to know that that, that idea of greeting and the practice of greeting, it is culturally bound. It takes, it, it takes a different form in different cultures and in different contexts. This is why when my wife goes to Vietnam to visit her family, they come to her and they'll grab her by the face and they'll get really close and they'll sniff her. They're, they're greeting her in that moment. They're sniffing her as a way of saying, I love you. I'm glad to see you, greeting you in that way. That's why elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul would talk about how the church in a certain context should greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, if we're going to cultivate hospitality, I'm not saying let's start sniffing each other. And I'm not saying let's start kissing each other. You might get something back that you don't want if you go up to someone in this context, in this culture, and kiss them. That's just not how we greet one another. But it does mean that you and I look each other in the eye. It does mean that you and I speak words of greeting to each other. Hi, how are you doing? It does mean that you and I sit around long enough maintaining eye contact so that whatever answers they're giving to your question, hi, how are you, you're listening to. That it's not just a superficial flyby of a, of a short sentimentality. It's, it's a greeting of grace that says, look, I want you to know that I see you. 
I want you to know that you matter to me. I want you to know that you're cared for and that this relationship means something. So as long as we're face to face and we're having this conversation, I'm going to be fully present. I'm not going to be checking my cell phone, listening for ways to get out of the conversation. I'm I'm going to engage you in a way that assures you that I care for you. I'm going to pay attention to who you are and what you have to say. And in the process, you're going to be imaging forth the glory of the gospel, because in so doing, you're going to be treating another person the way God in Christ has treated and greeted you. Where he has said to you, look, I'm paying attention to you. He's saying to you, look, I I love you. I care about you. I'm, I'm for you. Every time you greet another person and you cultivate hospitality, you are imaging forth the gospel in a practical way. That's another way that we saturate our relationships with the gospel is by cultivating this greeting, this hospitality. Understanding that greeting is a culturally, can be a culturally conditioned thing, but what we're going after is a theologically informed approach. A theologically informed approach to how we relate to one another. Paying attention, loving each other. This is why Christine Pohl would write in her little book on hospitality. She says, you know, a life of hospitality begins in worship with a recognition of God's grace and generosity. Hospitality is not first a duty and responsibility. It is first a response of love and gratitude for God's love and welcome welcome to us. You see, it's this type of greeting. It's this type of attention. It's this type of of being fully present with other people. It is this dynamic that that goes to war against sin in our lives. Because every day, the reality is, you and I are tempted by indwelling sin to be preoccupied with ourselves. To the point where we don't want to pay attention to another person. To a point we don't want to look up and look out and see the other and hear the other and converse with the other. We don't really want to do that a lot of times because we're so tempted by our sin to be self-absorbed and self-focused. And so that means that every time we move counter that tendency and we resist that temptation, what's happening? Well, it's evidence of God's grace at work in us. It's evidence of God's gospel producing fruit in us, saying, look, we we can love one another well. We can cultivate hospitality. And with that said, let me also say that this whole idea of greeting and hospitality, it's, it's not a matter of personality and profile. You can't appeal to your personality as a justifier for not greeting another person or cultivating a spirit or a posture or a practice of hospitality in your life. Your personality is not a justification. I'm not a very naturally hospitable person. I don't do well with what many call small talk. I have a hard time staying with it. And Kim would even confess, and I don't like telling this story, but one of our first dates, we're going on a date, and And we get in the car, we're going to the movie. She looks over at me. She says, Andrew, tell me about your day. How was your day? It's amazing that she's even with me right now. Like she married me anyways. God's grace kind of trumped my sin. And I looked at Kim and I said, do we really have to talk about our days? (laughs) So that just seems like a, isn't there something more substantive that we could talk about? Let me tell you about this book I was reading. And I just kind of changed the agenda of the conversation. Now, I could say, well, that's just my personality, but in saying that's just my personality, I'd be wrong. 
It may be true that it is my personality want to go in that direction, but it is not true to justify that response to Kim in that way because all I was doing was acting out my arrogance. I was calling her to engage me on my terms rather than engaging her on hers. You see, when it comes to hospitality, we're saying we're going to engage one another on their terms. We're going to be other-oriented in our greeting and in our relationship with other people. We're not going to insist that every person comes to us according to our personality or that every person comes to us according to our profile. No, we're we're seeing how the gospel is doing a work within us to make us other-oriented. We've seen this time and time and time again as we've studied through the book of Philippians. And so we want to cultivate hospitality by looking up, looking out, seeing other people and relating to them hospitably by moving towards them and engaging them on their terms and according to their agenda. And that means you may step into conversations that you might find, well, this conversation isn't really fruitful, but I assure you, if you're relating to another person on their terms, that person's going to feel love from you. That person's going to feel listened uh, by you. That person's heart is going to warm towards you and towards the Jesus that you trust and the Jesus that you love in as you relate to them in that kind of way. There's a guy by the name of David Powelson who voiced a prayer and asked for a church to pray for him in this direction. And I think it's a prayer request that we should all, uh, I think it's a good one for us. This is what he says. He says, you know, I want you to pray that our God would, would enable me to be quietly attentive to every individual. Enabled me to be quietly attentive to every individual I come in contact with. And that I would thoughtfully engage with every person. Quietly attentive, thoughtfully engaged. That's our prayer. That's our desire. That's how we cultivate a hospitable culture. This means when you're volunteering at Ego Cafe and you're giving your time to converse with students who don't speak English very well, and you're trying to help them learn uh, how to do so so they might navigate life here in Seattle in a more productive way and have a fruitful experience while they are here, and you're loving them in the name of Jesus in the Ego Cafe context, you're going to be quietly attentive and thoughtfully engaged. This means when you volunteer at Bubble English, which I highly encourage that you do, to engage in conversations with international students who are coming to, to study and to grow, many of whom have never heard the gospel or do not know Jesus. You're able to step into that environment, be quietly attentive, thoughtfully engaged, showing hospitality in those ministry opportunities um, in service of the Bubble English vision. This means every time you host a missional community and people come in and people go out and new faces come and go, as long as they're with you, you're with them. Being thoughtfully attentive and quietly attentive and thoughtfully engaged so that your missional communities become hospitable communities for all peoples who would come to hear the gospel and to see the gospel work itself out in your life and in your church's life. This means every time you step into this space, you're going to pay attention to how you contribute to cultivating hospitality ministry in our church. Yes, we have a hospitality ministry team and you're all a part of it. We do have a hospitality ministry team that helps with the greeting and helps with some other factors of what we do on Sundays. But understand that that team is not responsible ultimately for cultivating hospitality. You are. Your presence here. Your participation here. So that means you're going to pay attention to those around you. Try to be quietly attentive and thoughtfully engaged, meeting new people, welcoming new people, greeting people. This means you're going to be aware when new people show up. And if you see someone who's, who's new, you're going to remember what it was like when you were new. 
how when you stepped into that new environment, you were insecure and you were fearful and you were wondering, well, I don't know if I can really make it here. You're going to put yourself in that person's shoes and go to them and relate to them in light of your experience and love them and serve them well. And in the process, you're going to be able to discern, okay, what, what are the terms for me to greet them well? What, what, what are the terms for me to engage them and interact with them? in a fruitful capacity. I don't want to overwhelm them, but, but I want to encourage them and let them know that I see them. Let them know that they're valued. Let them know that they're desired here in this faith family, that they're desired to be a part of this church, that they're wanted to be a part of your missional communities, a part of our, that we want people to be a part of our church. But to do that, it requires us exercising hospitality, greeting one another in graceful, grace-oriented kinds of ways. If we're going to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships, it requires us learning to affirm identity, and it requires us cultivating hospitality. And that brings us to the last spot of this passage. That if we're going to do this, it means there in verse 23, not only do you see identity and hospitality, you get into verse 23, and you're emphasizing what? You're emphasizing grace. Paul ends with this benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. A gospel-saturated relationship is a grace-saturated relationship. That means we're not treating people well just because they deserve it or because they've earned it. It means we're going to treat people the way God in Christ has treated us. And how has God treated us? He's treated us gracefully. He hasn't given us that which we have deserved. He's given us what he's desired for us because he is a gracious God who loves us in Jesus. And when that grace begins to produce change within us, we start treating other people gracefully. And when you start saturating your relationships with grace in this way, you become less offendable. And when you become less offendable, you are better equipped to love and to serve others in the name of Jesus. You're not easily offended by that glance that you think you saw somebody give you over the course of the evening. You're not as quick to be offended by somebody talking about your, the, the food at your MC, not knowing that you made it and it doesn't quite meet their standards. And you're not as easily offended when you're saturating your relationship with grace, when you're thinking, you know, God treated me far better than I deserve. I'm going to treat everyone around me perhaps far better than they initially seem to deserve. This is how we see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships. We allow, we live in a, with an awareness of the grace of the Lord Jesus being with our spirit day in and day out. I love that Paul ends the verse here because, or ends the book here because it's the same way he started the book. He bookends the book of Philippians with grace. He says this in Philippians chapter 1. He opened up the letter, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he ends the letter here in verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, the beginning and the end. And you know, as we've studied through this letter, that a thread of grace runs from start to finish of the book of Philippians. So not only is grace characterizing the start, and not only is grace being brought into the ending, ending grace is covering every passage, every portion of this letter to the people of God. And if we're going to saturate our relationships with the gospel, we're going to start our relationships by grace. We're going to engage the course of our relationships in grace. 
And whatever ending comes to those relationships, those endings are going to come through grace, beginning and ending. This means when you wake up in the morning, you think about grace. Start your day with those thoughts. When you go, be- go to bed at night, you think about grace. End your day thinking about how God has been good to you in Jesus. And if you're beginning and ending your day with grace, chances are that thread of grace is going to carry you over the course of your life, over the course of those 24 hours, however long you're awake, you're, you're living by grace. This is the call of the Christian life. This is the reality we get to enjoy together. Seeing lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships. Stepping into conversations where those conversations begin with grace. Those conversations end with grace. Saturating everything. God has been good to me. I'm going to be good to others. God has been good to me despite me. I'm going to be good to others despite them. That's what grace does in our relationships with each other. This is how, as we move into the future, we're going to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you asking you to help us see ourselves and to see one another the way that you see us. I pray, God, that you would help us to treat one another the way that you treat us. I pray, God, that grace would become the, that grace would be the air that we breathe in all of our interactions with one another, with all of our interactions with the world around us, that we would be a, that all of our relationships would be saturated by your gospel. God, I pray that you would create the kind of flourishing that can happen when that happens. God, I ask and I pray that you would be all that we need and then some in Jesus' name. Amen.